Good evening, everybody, and welcome to tonight's presentation of Chat with the Designers, your online, live, interactive weekly magazine for hams, homebrewers, and experimenters. This is the August 28th session. Actually, I think it's like episode number 37. Tonight, we'll be talking about troubleshooting techniques again. We had a great session last week wherein we um, went through an awful lot of... Uh, uh, ground building relative to troubleshooting techniques, uh, tr troubleshooting approaches, uh, some tips and techniques and to use in general. And then we started focusing in on a project, uh, um, a very specific case example, the Softrock Ensemble RX2 receiver. This is a project that many of us have, uh, many of us have tried to build, some of us have got it working, but I know from experience uh, here, Joe and I have uh, uh, use this as a club building experience, a club building project, and a good number of hams got it working, and um, a, a number of hams do not yet have it working. So we figured it might be a really good way to uh, illustrate some of the concepts and techniques that we're talking about as far as troubleshooting. And of course, as you know, troubleshooting is the diagnostic work and the detective work that you do as a as an electronics expert here trying to get a circuit working that is known to be working, or at least it should be working. We're not debugging an unknown circuit. We're troubleshooting a circuit that should, by all means, be working. Now, that in itself is a really good thing to, uh, it's a good condition to be in. You know it should be working. And uh, we we actually discussed some good techniques for going about how to how to uh, approach it from a divide by two, or a divide and conquer kind of approach, and uh, Joe had a great example last week of you know, using a known good, a golden board, another project that is working side by side with the one that's not working. And with that, you're able to uh, do some comparative voltages, comparative measurements, compare the behavior, the operating behavior of the circuit that you're troubleshooting and maybe help get uh, a little bit uh, to, the, to the bottom line of it. Joe, perhaps um, perhaps to kind of warm us up for this week, I was thinking that maybe we could use uh, the guidelines, the summary from last week's session that um, is ex was extensively copied and, and updated on the on the whiteboard. I uh, hope everybody's had a chance to kind of view that, so we were able to transcribe a lot of the notes and the guidance and tips into and flesh out that uh, the whiteboard material when we're using the same whiteboard this week, and we'll just be extending it down to finishing up that schematic. But Joe, perhaps you could just kind of cover lightly the techniques that we talked about last week, starting from, you know, the tools on the bench and information gathering and, and ways to, you know, some of the, approach some of the common, common uh, issues with uh, troubleshooting circuits. What do you think? Certainly, George. Uh, good evening, all. Yeah, troubleshooting is always fun. Uh, <laughs> it's always a challenge. And uh, it's usually the darn things you, you overlook that end up being what the, uh, what the issue is. Um, obviously, the first thing you want to do when you're, um, when you're setting up to troubleshoot is to gather all of the information you can on the, uh, on the project. Um, schematics, the uh, description of operation, perhaps uh, in some cases data sheets for the uh, individual components, particularly ICs or transistors. Um, 
And one thing I like to do is to uh, make a copy of the schematic um, so that as I'm going through, I can mark up the extra copy of the schematic and I don't uh, mess up the, uh, the original schematic. It doesn't hurt to have that schematic and layouts also. Um, top and bottom of the PC board layouts if you can get them. And uh, mark what is right and um, as you go through it and check it so that you can uh, check what you're doing. Um, test equipment, the, the more you have, the better, but uh, the very basics are uh, some sort of uh, voltmeter, uh, preferably a digital uh, VOM, a, a power supply, um, and some means of monitoring the power supply voltage and current uh, so that uh, you can tell when uh, the circuit's drawing power or perhaps it's drawing too much current, you know. Uh, it's always helpful to have a oscilloscope. Uh, the one tool besides uh, having a um, digital voltmeter uh, that's very handy to have is an oscilloscope because it lets you look at a number of things at one time. DC voltages, it lets you look at the uh, uh, AC voltages, look for noise or distortion, things that uh, don't belong. And if um, uh, you get to the point where you can afford it, and I've finally done so, a good uh, signal generator is always good. Um, Almost any signal generator is uh, is better than no signal generator, but it's always good to have one that uh, you know the exact frequency is reasonably stable, and you can vary the output level. Uh, as George mentioned, we both have the HP 8640Bs, which are excellent uh, around the shop and expensive. Uh, it also helps to have some sort of uh, measuring device, uh, measuring uh, feature for um, measuring RF voltages, a simple uh, diode detector can go a long way uh, to use along with your DVM to measure uh, RF voltages. Um, and if you can afford it, uh, a, uh, a nice RF voltmeter like the KA7EXM uh, RF power meter or even a spectrum analyzer. When you're going through the um, troubleshooting, as George mentioned, what you want to do is to Try to um, <clears throat> make a practice of finding what does and doesn't work and uh, concentrate on what doesn't work so you make the job easier as you go along. First thing you probably want to start with, even before you turn power on, is doing a good visual check. Check to make all the components are in, they're installed properly, um, and installed in the right holes in the front circuit board. That can bite you. Make sure your solder joints are all good. You don't have any any shorts or unsoldered joints on the board, and that uh, no leads are touching, so they're shorting. <clears throat> and then you'd go along to uh, next thing is to check power supplies. Make sure that uh, the voltage going in is correct. The current is about what you expect, and then go through uh, each regulator in in, for example, the uh, ensemble we're talking about here. Make sure that the output voltage is correct, uh, because nothing's going to work if the if the voltages aren't right. Once you have all the, um, the voltages right, you can go through and then look for uh, things like uh, uh, bias voltages. Make sure they're correct. Uh, go through stage by stage, and then uh, start uh, start actually putting signals in and trying to isolate what stages do and don't work. And um, I find it easiest to start at the the back end 
the output end and work uh, toward the input. Um, others uh, adopt a different approach, but uh, what you want to do is to go in stage by stage, put some sort of stimulus in there. If you can, look at what's happening and then concentrate on what doesn't look right. And you go through little by little until um, until you verify that everything is working and um, you correct any problems. And uh, if you're lucky, uh, lucky it's good. And as George mentioned, it helps to have a borrow one from somebody else that's working so that you can do an A-B comparison. Um, that is of uh, immense help. So that's basically what uh, what it's all about. We're going to go into a little more detail um, the rest of the ensemble tonight. And um, there's some gotchas in there that uh, uh, George, I know, particularly has good experience finding. So I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, back to you, George. Thanks, Joe. Nice, nice review of the topics there. We had a nice uh, um, discussion between last week's session and right now on our reflector, our chat with the design reflector. And uh, JJ started it off by sharing some of the uh, the deals that he saw for a what was it, uh, uh, Joe Jessen? If you're able to, if you have a good microphone or good connection now, it was a it was a camera that was able to display close up and uh, almost like a camera on a microscope. Was that what what it was? Well, Joe's not uh, JJ doesn't have his mic set up uh, this this week, I guess. Oh, um, Joe, do you remember it? Uh, um, a microscope. Uh, you, you're just not making it, uh, Joe. Sorry about that. Um, uh, Joe, E, do you remember what it was? Yes, indeed. It was a um, a microscope or a, uh, a, a camera with uh, real high resolution um, on a, um, a microscope that uh, you could hook up to your computer and um, resolve very small uh, images um, on the uh, on the uh, computer. Uh, good good aid. Uh, jo uh, John ZL1AZS uses a um, a direct optical uh, um, binocular microscope, which is better. But uh, certainly a, a, a uh, microscope connected to a uh, a video monitor um, will do a good job as well. You can't afford a good optical instrument. Okay, good. And that's something I think we gave a couple of links to eBay or whatnot. If you're uh, if you have anything from like forty dollars spare up to maybe oh I don't know one hundred and twenty dollars, there were a range of things you can get, and it was really quite helpful. I have a stereo microscope on my bench, and it is really quite valuable for looking at the quality of the the solder connections, especially on surface mount devices and uh, if you have a chance to augment your homebrew invention in that manner, I think you'll be that much better off. Being able to see and uh, uh, what you're trying to fix is ever so critically important, as you might think. All right, let's uh, let's get into the uh, well, um, well. Maybe before we do that, maybe let's offer open um, open this up for any questions that some um, some guys might have still from last week's session. Things that we covered, and of course I summarized them on the uh, on the whiteboard before the presentation tonight. So I think we covered most of the the topics that 
you know, we fleshed out most of the topics that we hit last week. Are there any questions before we kind of dive in and continue onward uh, this week? Go ahead. All right. That, that's fine. Um, I think, uh, indeed, we, we have a lot of good material, and we're, we're kind of taking it slowly, and it's uh, it's helpful to be going through it like this. Let's, uh, let's review the... Uh, Let's review the bubbles that the circuit uh, diagram uh, sections that were identified with red bubbles, red circles, and uh, just go through it real quickly just to kind of warm up and get into the groove because then we'll quickly go right into the next session section which uh, of the circuit, which I, I kind of label as the RF processing side. We really started focusing on the uh, most mostly on the USB and the digital side, um, the top schematic that's on our whiteboard, and we started in the upper left-hand corner, the DC power in jack, obviously, uh, where the where the DC power is applied. There's a D3 diode there that is used as a polarity protection diode. If you happen to apply the wrong, polar wrong polarity to the power jack, that diode should protect uh, your circuit from kind of getting zapped. And uh, it's, it's a good practice to put something like that in all of your projects, by the way. And if it happens to be in wrong, even if you have the right polarity applied, if it happens to be in wrong, you'll still get uh, 12 volts on the left side of the diode, but you won't get anything on the on the right-hand side. Um, so it's just kind of tips and techniques there. And, of course, the DC voltage, the main DC power feeds U7, which is an LM78... Uh, LO5. It's a 5-volt regulator. And it's important to note that that 5-volt regulator um, is actually located on the right-hand side of the circuit board as you're looking at the top of it. And hence, it's uh, connected to the right-hand side ground plane, or the RF processing ground plane, as it provides the 5 volts for most of the, uh, most of the uh, signal processing that <clears throat> and switching that goes on in on the right-hand side of the board in the RF uh, side. Now, this is in contrast to the voltage regulator right below it, um, U2, which is a 3.3-volt regulator. It takes the 5 volts input from the USB port down below and to the left. It takes that 5 volts and it regulates it to 3.3 volts, which only supplies two chips. One is the, uh, the microcontroller, which is uh, U1. It's the ATtiny85 uh, microcontroller that serves as a USB interface. It, uh, it, it's, pre, uh, it's supplied pre-programmed, and those who get the kits, uh, pre-programmed with the USB protocol such that it can talk to the computer, which is running um, an SDR program, something like Rocky or WinHD or something. And in the process of talking to the com com uh, computer, it interprets the VFO controls on the on the GUI of the computer on, on your screen. Whenever you change the dial reading of what you want to be listening to, it's that com that little controller U1 that uh, interprets the changing frequency and correspondingly wiggles two lines that go up to the SI570 chip just above it, which happens to be U. Oh gosh, I can't even see it. U something. It's directly up above U um, U1. And um, it's in bubble number four. And this is the clock generator, the master clock generator, that happens to be 
generating frequencies at a four times the desired uh, frequency that you're listening to. So if you're listening to 7.1 megahertz, i.e. the 40 meter band, that SI570 would be commanded to generate uh, 28.4 megahertz for reasons that we'll get into in, a, in just a, a moment. But um, those two chips, the U1 and U2, uh, U1 and whatever the SI570 is, are run off the 3.3 volt supply, and their corresponding grounds are in the what I call the left-hand side, the smaller ground plane for the digital, for the uh, USB and the digital side. That's an important concept to remember, and uh, we we the designers did it that way in order to keep separate the um, the digital signals and all of the possible noise and such that might be on the ground plane and the power buses and so on. Uh, keep that separate from the RF processing side, which by nature, of course, we want to keep nice and clean and and uh, uh, noise free. And that's the purpose of the two interface circuits, uh, T1, which is bubble number six, and the opto isolators, which is bubble number nine. Jeez. So um, we see that uh, those two circuits, the transformer isolates the clock uh, such that the output or the secondary of the transformer, that particular ground is connected on the, on the right-hand side of the ground plane of the, of the board. Uh, so the signal gets through, and and uh, yet the grounds are, are isolated. And the two signals that are transmitted by the opto-isolators um, are uh, are also quite isolated. The grounds on the right-hand side of those opto-isolators, indicated by blue arrow 10A, is, uh, is on the RF processing side. Yet the signals are emanating from the U1 controller on the left-hand side, and uh, isolation is maintained. And that's, again, important for uh, uh, the purposes of, of, of um, keeping all the noise, digital noise, out of the RF processing. So in, a, in one or two long breaths, that was about what we covered last week. Uh, all of the material that Joe covered from the basics, and then we started applying the basics there on the, uh, in the digital portion of the Softrock Ensemble RX2. And now we're going to get into the processing of the actual RF signals, and which is kind of a, a fun thing. And we start focusing on why this is an SDR. What is it makes it? Uh, what is a quadrature sampling uh, detector? Um, what is it about the I and the Q signals? And how are those I and Q signals used by an input to a computer in order to detect? Uh, the modulation that is, uh, you know, being received. Um, take a quick break here. Is there any questions that anybody has on what uh, either Joe or, or I covered for um, uh, in brief review? Uh, yes, John. Yes, John. Yes, John. Uh, um, uh, thanks, George and Joe. Uh, one of the things that tripped me up, and I don't know whether that's just my, the logic circuitry in my brain uh, that did it, is that if you look at the um, what is it, the second uh, schematic down, uh, the bottom schematic, um, at the bottom right, you'll see a, a plug 
a socket rather, uh, called line in. Um, and that, that was a source of confusion for me because uh, um, the, the line in actually goes to the line in on my external um, firewire sound card. So I was faced with line in, line in, if you get, the, if you get my drift. Once I figured out that that line in was actually uh, appeared to be a line out, uh, everything you have new mail. Yeah, so uh, that's that's what happened for me. Thank you. Yeah, I know what you mean exactly. That's a source of a lot of confusion um, from newcomers and and old timers relative to connections to the to the computer. It's all a matter of what label that you give the particular plug it so um my own convention if i were to be labeling connectors on a diagram um, if you're looking at a device what function is that device uh, serving in the case that you outlined here it's a line out but it happens to be from a system perspective that line out goes to the line in of the computer so the designers just kept the same nomenclature and I think by nature, by, by standardization, that they do it for all of the soft rocks. So you kind of get into the groove. But I admit, even I, when it comes time to quickly putting together a soft rocks um, here on the bench and in quick time, quick order, I get them mixed up at times. And when something doesn't work, that's one of the first things I do is check the plugs and swap them around just to see if that might have been the case. But don't feel badly about that. Okay, so let's get into things. Things that we really did not cover on the upper schematic last week was the quadrature clocks. Now, you recall that the signal coming out of the SI570, I said, was four times the frequency that you want to be listening to. And again, let's use the example uh, that we're listening on 40 meters at 7.1 megahertz. So in that condition, your VFO, which is, you know, on, on the computer screen running Rocky or uh, WinHD, is set to 7.1. But the software behind that is actually commanding the microcontroller, the ATtiny85, to control that SI570 chip to produce four times 7.1 or 28.4 megahertz. Now that's kind of important um, because ultimately we're going to talk about how there is a, a commutating mixer is at the basis of this particular design, as is many of the soft of soft rocks and in SDR series. The the so-called Taylor mixer uh, is a quadrature sampling detector. That requires um, clocks that are four times the frequency that you ultimately want to be demodulating from, in essence. And those two clocks are actually identical. They are absolutely identical, except they are shifted in phase by 90 degrees. So if you look at bubble number eight and you look at bubble number seven on the upper schematic, you would see that the clock signal being generated by the SI570 goes into the, the transformer T1 and that gets coupled up to um, bubble, first of all, bubble number eight, which is, is some digital logic that's arranged just to divide by two. So whatever the frequency is, uh, the square wave going into, you know, through being coupled through C3 and into the first part of U12, that's uh, that's a square wave that's four times the frequency, and uh, that divide by two 
breaks that down down to down to two. So 28 mega 20.4 megahertz gets divided down by two to 14.2 megahertz going into bubble number seven just below it. And in a sort of similar manner, sort of a similar configuration, that 14.2 um, megahertz signal is being divided by uh, two to yield um, a 7.1 megahertz signal that is um, producing two signals that is exactly 90 degrees out of phase. Those signals are QSD clock one and QSD clock zero, and those are the uh, those are the signals that are ultimately sent to the, mi the mixer. Now Pete asked a question in the text area of uh, the TeamSpeak client here, saying just what is quadrature in this particular sense? And I've mentioned one aspect of quadrature, um, and that's that two signals that are identical but shifted or uh, differing by 90 degrees in phase, those are quadrature-related signals. And that's, that's just the name uh, of them. If you were to look at those signals on a, on a vector scope, for example, they would be shown uh, as uh, 90 degrees out of phase with each other, or at 90 degrees, their vectors would be 90 degrees uh, from, from each other. Now, this is an important aspect, again, because, again, the, uh, the way that the clocks are presented down to the mixer, the commutating mixer, is uh, ultimately going to produce, when you, squirt, when you mix a signal, or in this case two signals here at, uh, that are 90 degrees out of phase with an RF signal that's coming in, it'll produce two baseband signals, two audio signals that are absolutely identical, but shifted by 90 degrees. And again, that quadrature relationship, that 90-degree relationship between the, both identical signals is the basis for the signal processing that ultimately comes down to demodulate the signal. Now, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, so let me back up. And uh, let's just stay right here on bubbles 7 and 8, and then uh, uh, see if there, if you had a scope, for example, and understanding that the, the nature of this our show tonight is about debugging and this particular uh, this portion of the circuit frankly is relatively easy to debug if it's working right I'm sorry too easy to troubleshoot if it's working right you'll see that uh, you could put one scope probe on the input uh, there for example at uh, at the input to bubble number eight pin three of u12 and that would be at again 28.4 megahertz and then you could put your another scope probe um, on any of the, uh, well, ideally, then I guess the output of the second one, which is pin 9 of U12, and you would see half the frequency, and they would be locked right in step. They would be, there would be no jitter, there would be, they would exactly divide by 2. Pretty straightforward. And if it's not dividing by 2, that's where you've got to work out the problem. Now, I mentioned up in the diagram, we mentioned last week that you need to have a scope that is sufficient bandwidth in order to see 28 megahertz. Now, if you happen to pull uh, Shannon sampling theorem and the Nyquist, uh, the Nyquist uh, theory, sampling theory, you'll know that roughly, if you wanted to see um, a 28 megahertz signal in relatively good reconstruction on either a digital scope or even an analog scope, you would have to have two times the bandwidth of that in order to see that signal. So that means a roughly, well, I mean, precisely, if you wanted to see it, the two times 28 megahertz is 56 megahertz. 
most scopes, even low-end scopes, are 100 megahertz bandwidth. So you can probably um, adequately see that uh, that particular condition, that particular signal that you want to be looking at. Joe, do you want to maybe mention a little bit, perhaps, if you didn't have the scope set up right, or maybe if your compensation wasn't set up right, or some of the hazards that come about when trying to look at fast signals on a, either an analog or a digital scope? Sure. Yeah, the one thing I want to mention uh, before I get to that is one thing that I've seen cause problems with this divider chain. Um, if you look at bubble six in the schematic, uh, it's a transformer that couples the, uh, the clock signal from the SI570. And it, it couples it um, um, as an AC signal, obviously. But the, um, an AC signal goes above, above and below ground. So you need to convert that into something that the um, flip-flops want to see. Flip-flops want to see something that is uh, biased at about half voltage and goes from ground to the positive supply voltage. So actually what, uh, what they do with the AC transformer output is to couple it into the flip-flop through a coupling capacitor and then a two-resistor voltage divider. Two-resistor voltage divider goes from plus five to ground, so its middle is at two and a half volts. So then what you get with the um, coupling through the capacitor is that you get a, a signal that goes from approximately ground up to five volts centered in the middle of the, um, um, middle of the, uh, the operating range. Uh, why that's important, well, the flip-flop's not going to work unless you have the right swing there. And I have seen cases where the uh, two resistors, R10 and R11, are not the right value. So you don't get the right bias voltage. And you're not feeding the flip-flop with, uh, with a signal uh, uh, biased in the middle of the range there, the digital range. Um, that's just a matter of experience and something that, that bites you now and again. Uh, Joe, uh, I just want to double check. Um, you were talking about uh, T1 going to C3 and then up to the voltage provider, which is R10 and 11. Is that right? That's it. Okay, now about the scope. Yeah, George mentioned frequency response is important. So you want to be sure that um, you have the uh, compensation on your scope probe uh, if you're using a 10 times probe or higher, you want to be sure that uh, you've adjusted it with the uh, test square wave in the, uh, um, in the oscilloscope so that it's compensated properly. And there's an adjustment in there. You, you hook the probe up to uh, uh, the, the test square wave in front of your scope and adjust the um, uh, little capacitor you adjust to get a perfect square wave with no, uh, no roundness to the edges of the the, uh, so of the uh, square waveform and no overshoot uh, so that that assures that uh, it it uh, passes all frequencies within its operating range uh, with the same amount of attenuation and you don't uh, you don't lose frequency response similarly uh, you probably want to go um, DC coupled so that uh, you're looking at digital signals that are going to swing between 0 and 5 volts and you want to have it set to probably something like a uh, two volt per division range so that you'll get for a five volt swing, you'll get two and a half uh, divisions of swing. You can tell that um, the, the swing is uh, going properly there. And um, you want to also trigger the oscilloscope uh, 
properly on the waveform you're looking at so that it's stable. And if you use two probes, uh, uh, trigger the, uh, set the triggering on the input signal, the A channel, and um, so that then you can look at the phase relationship uh, of the uh, signals. And you can see that uh, indeed at the output, uh, it's shifted by a quarter of a cycle or 90 degrees. Back to you, George. All right, Joe. That's good. Uh, good explanation. Thank you. And again, I want to underscore that the the value of having an oscilloscope on the bench may be obvious to most of us, and if you indeed have one, it, it is. Um, but if you don't have one, you might be holding back and saying, "Well, I really want to get that next uh, monobander kit, and it's either get get another kit." Or get another accessory or another doodah or get a scope. And it always comes down to getting the other doodah. Well, trust me, when you, when you keep concentrating on building up your the capabilities in your bench, um, and a scope is a very important element of that, you'll, you'll find yourself that much better off being able to actually see the signals. We talked a little bit about this last week. You can take a DVM and look at a voltage, a uh, 5-volt uh, volt power bus, for example, on this board, and you would see 5.0 volts, and and that might suffice, and you might be just as just as well off uh, knowing that. But you might be better off if you were able to see that 5 volt signal on the scope, you know. But it would have perhaps a little bit of a periodic pulse to it, and it might be indicative indicative of other problems that your circuit is experiencing that your DVM, by its nature, just doesn't show. So. There are some tricks. We, um, Alan um, uh, Wolke, W2AEW, reviewed with us for two consecutive, uh, well, two sessions in the uh, in our recent past here, how to use the scopes and set them up and so on. It is probably the most valuable tool that we have as homebrewers and troubleshooters and debuggers and and uh, circuit experimenters. So just to underscore that particular uh, point and. Again, let's say, Joe, just one final point before we leave T1, that coupling transformer. Um, can you explain the characteristics of that toroidal transformer in light of our recent uh, episode of chat with the designers talking about toroids? Yeah, good point, George. Yeah, T, and T1 is a, a bifiler. It is a, um, it's a bifiler wound transformer just for uh, convenience. Um, have good coupling between input and output, um, and the bifolar winding is just a matter of convenience, so that um, so that you you have tight coupling between input and output, and um, you provide uh, uh, broadband performance. Uh, you also notice that um, the output side of the transformer is uh, has a a, a resistor across it, R9, a 2.2k resistor. This just uh, uh, is a kind of a belt and suspenders thing because it's being driven by a square wave, and uh, when you apply a square wave to a uh, an inductive transformer, it tends to cause inductive kicks by flyback action. We don't want this to happen, so it has a little resistor in there to uh, knock down the inductive action a bit, so that you don't get uh, wild uh, coupling spikes there. Uh, back to you, George. Do you know what kind of a, uh, a transformer it is? I haven't looked up the parts list, and I can't. Actually, I probably could. I have the circuit right here in front of me as well. And you can look at it in the 
in the diagram. It's a far right. So just trying to tie the threads from episode to episode relative to a lot of the skills that we're working on here and chat with the designers. Um, let's move down to schematic number two. This is kind of a fun one. There's an easy part and there's, there's, a, there's a challenging part uh, from a troubleshooting perspective. So if you would, dial down to there where it says, okay, now on to our troubleshooting techniques part two discussion. We're going to hold the... Um, we're going to hold the, the the clocking signals, the quadrature clocking signals, off to the side for just a moment, and we're going to start um, at the antenna input, which is on the left-hand side in bubble number one. There's a transformer T2, and um, this is you. You see the antenna jack, the BNC jack down below, um, connecting to the primary of T2. And there's also a little bit of a ground jumper. We talked about this last week. It's optional. Um, some people recommend uh, connecting that the ground side of the antenna to the ground of the of the circuit board. Others just rely on the coupling. We won't need to get into that this evening. But Joe, you found some information. Actually, I think it was John had. Uh, I think it was John or somebody had mentioned last week about some errata that was recently surfaced regarding the soft rocks and specifically the ensemble. And I think T2 was one of them. Could you uh, maybe summarize T2's function there and then also what the errata is? Sure. T2 is, um, is used to couple the antenna um, into, um, uh, into the rest of the circuitry. Um, and it's probably, probably a ferrite toroid, very similar to a T1 with um, a couple with just two windings on it, wound by filer for convenience. Um, it is a broadband transformer, and in this case, it's um, it does not need resistive uh, uh, coupling on the output because it's uh, it's not got any square waves going through. Um, so the idea is that it is a ferrite core uh, with uh, uh, by filer winding for broadband performance. Um, there's one extra wrinkle, however. Um, that uh, ties into the, the multiplexer that it goes into. You'll notice that the left-hand side of uh, T2 goes to a voltage divider um, to 5 volts, consisting of two 2.2 K resistor. And the output of the transformer goes to the junction of those two resistors, which is at 2.5 volts. And um, that's bypassed to ground with a 0.1 microfarad capacitor. That supplies, uh, again, a bias to keep the multiplexer, which we'll talk about next, in the middle of its linear range. Uh, so it's not trying to operate at ground and you're trying to put a uh, bipolar signal through there. The input of the transformer has a, uh, a jumper on there. It's connected to the antenna connector, but there is a jumper shown to connect it um, optionally to ground. The idea is that um, if you want to keep uh, common mode noise from coupling back um, and radiating out on the feed line or, or noise on the feed line from coupling into your ground, possibly causing problems, you can open up the jumper and float the um, float that winding. I believe it was Terry, WB4JFI, mentioned last week that um, folks have found that uh, there are errors in some of the um, ensemble uh, documentation where the uh, 
lead of the ground lead of that transformer is improperly connected um, so that it actually goes to ground and the jumper doesn't do much good. Uh, there is a link, which I'm sure George will put, um, put up uh, in the notes from this session, which shows pictures of, of how the uh, jumpers for the various ensembles uh, and the um, RXTX, the Softrock RXTX, um, how the, uh, the actual connections should be made to the PC board to, uh, to give this option of uh, floating the uh, transformer so that it, uh, it doesn't couple uh, with the rest of the circuitry. All right. In the scheme of things, it didn't hurt an awful lot, but I think from a puristic standpoint, it um, you'd be able to have better common mode coupling, I think was the issue, um, as you said, Joe. So, so it's, uh, it's, it's a, a way to optimize, optimize the designs and get away from things. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah, the reason it didn't make any difference was that it was wired improperly, so it was always grounded. So taking the jump roof made no difference. And there you go. Okay, so let's. Uh, you've got the antenna connected to that BNC. It gets coupled through transformer T2, which is biased at about 2.5 volts and just ideally for input to that multiplexer, U8. It's an FST3253. It's a digital device. It's a CMOS digital device. Um, and uh, it's a switch. It's like a, you can consider it's a, um, uh, in this case here, it would be a single pole four throw, a single pole four position switch that ultimately um, takes the, the antenna signal that's input to the 1A and 2A inputs and outputs it to one of four outputs on the multiplexer. So you're taking an analog signal, the antenna signal, and then you're, uh, based on some controls that I'll mention in here just a moment, you're going to take that antenna signal and it'll be passed to one of four, actually, filters uh, that's in the center of, of this. And actually, in talking about this MUX and, and the DMUX on the other side, in, in the same breath, uh, bubble number four is the same circuit, just kind of turned around. Now, both of these circuits are controlled by the two signals that came through an opto-isolator from up above, uh, FL select zero and FL, or frequency, um, select number one. And you can see those two signals coming down to the inputs to those MUXs, S1 and S0. And those digital signals are coming from the ATtiny85, depending on what frequency the ATtiny85 is commanding of the signal generator. Bottom line, and a simple way to say it, is that these two signals are the band switching signals. The little microcontroller, the ATtiny, determines uh, you know what band you're in, and then it puts those that FL select zero and FL select one signal at the proper high or low signal, and then that commands the MUX position, the switch, the internal switch, if you will, the internal rotary switch on those MUXs to be at position 0, 1, 2, or 3. And actually that corresponds to band 0, band 1, band 2, and band 3, as you can see in the, uh, the filter in between. And those are band pass filters that um, are ideally suited for 
passing only the bands of the given frequencies uh, that the board supports. You can wire the board, you can populate the board to um, to be appropriate for four consecutive types of bands. Uh, let's just say for 20, um, oh gosh, I'm going to mess this up, but uh, maybe 30, 20, 17, and 15. Those might be the four bands that the board covers. So we take a look at uh, uh, those muxes, and kind of a really fun thing to do is to look at the signals. Well, let's do it this way. You've got your VFO up on your on your screen, on your computer screen. It's again, it's uh, um, Rocky or WinHD, and you've got 7.1 megahertz dialed up, and it's showing there. And let's just pretend that that is going to be um, decoded as band zero, because then both FL select zero and FL select one is going to be our low levels, and that's going to kind of route your antenna signal through that MUX U8, bubble two, through band zero, um, band pass filter, over to the MUX in bubble number four, which is U9, and your antenna signal comes out. So in essence, what you've done now is taken your broadband antenna signal. I mean, of course, your broadband antenna has everything coming in on it. And you've applied then the uh, the band pass represented by the components in band zero. And then the signal coming out and going down to the mixers below, coming out of bubble number four, that is a very much cleaner um, band segment, a chunk of RF, which is um, ostensibly only on 40 meters, 7.1, you know, 7 to maybe 7 to 7.4 megahertz. So that's how we kind of select the right kind of band pass for the signal that we want to be listening to. Um, the neat trick that I was alluding to is that you could put your scope probe to see if things are working just right. You could actually take your DVM and you could... Uh, um, you could put your signal on the FL select zero and FL select one and actually see those uh, levels going high and low. Okay, once again, I put the uh, the URL for today's whiteboard on the text section of the uh, TeamSpeak client. Um, hopefully everybody can remember that the links for this are pretty much unchanging. You can, if you bookmark the Chat with the Designer page, you will always see the address for our uh, our whiteboard. And you can always get there as well through the link for Chat with the Designers on the New Jersey QRP page, njqrp.org. Okay, so um, the the point of, of, of this section then is just to be saying that if you can monitor those two signals, the control signals, uh, FL Select 0 and FL Select 1, You'll, and then you can change the VFO setting on your computer um, front panel, the GUI. You'll be able to see those signals change, indicating that you've got different band segments uh, flipping in and flipping out. And it's kind of cool. And that's a way to test that circuit to make sure that that circuit is working. Because if you change from 7.1 megahertz to, say, uh, 10.1 or to 14.1, you will see, if things are working right, you will see those two signals, FL select 0 and FL select 1 change. If they don't, your circuit's not working right. So you can kind of kind of zoom in in there and what might be causing that particular problem. Joe, you want to maybe comment on the, uh, um, if you could, uh, there's a couple of 
pads, um, attenuator pads, in band 0 and band 1. Um, Want to mention why we need those for those two lower bands? Yeah, uh, I, can, I can comment in general. The, um, the soft rock is intended for use, or the, the ensemble can be used down in LF as well as up in the HF range. So the facility is made for some of the bands where you would have lots of noise and quite possibly uh, strong broadcast signals to put some attenuators in there to knock down the signals so they don't overload the receiver. Um, the, um, and it's band specific. Uh, generally speaking, on the lower frequencies, particularly on LF and the lower HF uh, bands, you don't need uh, great selectivity, or you don't need great sensitivity because uh, the signals, the, uh, the um, ambient noise level is quite high so that you can, uh, you can compromise some of the sensitivity to um, keep the strong signals from generating unwanted extra signals. And that's uh, what those two attenuator uh, pads are for. And as I say, they're band specific. Uh, in the parts list, uh, you can see what the values are. And uh, indeed, in uh, some of the bands, you just bypass those, uh, depending on the build instructions. Perfect. Perfect. And um, um, a really kind of a cool, another test that I like doing when I'm working on these things is to uh, take my handy-dandy Elecraft XG3 signal source. If you don't have one, uh, or if you don't want to make one that's something like it, um, or if you don't have a DDS signal generator or whatever, that's a handy little handheld uh, signal generator that I like to squirt into J4, the antenna jack. And when I put a good known signal in there, and I can make it a strong signal too, in case I need to kind of make sure that I'm not uh, looking at noise, but I mean, I can put a nice strong signal in there, and I can actually trace it right through the MUX uh, to the proper bandpass filter and through the other MUX in bubble 4 and see that cleaner, a little bit amplitude reduced signal, but still it's a cleaner, um, it's only that band chunk that is being uh, allowed to pass through. I can actually see that. So that's a way to test with a, by injecting a signal. We were talking about that last week. Quickie, George. You say look at it, it goes through there. You inject the signal. What, what are you actually looking at the signal with? Aha, I'm looking at it with scope. So the signal that's being generated is uh, like a sine wave, a nice single tone sine wave at a given frequency, like 7.1 megahertz. So you can put your scope on the probe. You can put your scope probe on, um, well, at any point along there, along the uh, the band pass filters, or on the pins carefully on the pins of the mux, and you can actually see the signal. For example. If I have, um, for example, if I have 7.1 being squirted into the antenna jack and I have my VFO on my PC GUI uh, dialed to 7.1 megahertz, I know that FL0 and FL1 uh, will be low, both will, will both be low. And that should route me up to pin 6 and pin 10. They are tied together pin 6 and 10 on U8. So that's the condition. Now, if I put that signal into the test signal into the antenna jack, if I probe on pin 6 and pin 10, I'll see that signal. And then I can also at the same time then probe other pins 
in other words, look at the other bandpass filters, and I will see significantly less to perhaps nothing of a signal there. So in other words, I can actually see the signal that I'm looking at, I'm injecting, appear on the proper bandpass filter. And I can do the same thing on the, the, the mating uh, mux over in bubble number four. I can see the signal that I'm injecting on pin six and ten, as well as on the outputs, uh, pin seven and nine. So that is able, um, and, and and again, not on the corresponding uh, uh, other inputs. And that tells me that the entire circuit is working, at least to the point of continuity and semi-filtering. Yeah, one, one additional point, if you don't have a scope, you can uh, look at the output pins of uh, the first MUX, U8, and look for that 2.5-volt uh, bias, which will appear only on the pins that are selected for a given filter. So you can at least tell if the switch is working that way. Similarly, you can do the same thing on U9. The uh, the output DMUX, look for a bias voltage on uh, what should be the selected pins for a given band. That is outstanding. I hadn't, uh, I hadn't realized that, but of course that is the case. Good notation, Joe. Okay, let's let's move along and let's move down to the bottom portion of this uh, of this particular schematic, which happens to be at, at least uh, let's let's talk about transistor T3, which is in bubble number five. So let's see if we can analyze what uh, what T3 is uh, there for and how it is performing and so on. So our signal, our, our injected signal or the antenna signal is coming down through the proper uh, uh, through the MUX, through the proper filter, and through the DMUX, and it's coming down on that wire there, which comes to the back to the left-hand side of the page into the primary of T3. And um, actually, uh, we see that the, uh, in a similar fashion here, just as we indicated before, its primary, which happens to be ultimately connected to through the winding to the output of the of the MUX up above is biased at two and a half volts for the reasons that Joe had outlined uh, again before. And the transformer is, uh, is that a bifiler winding, Joe? I believe it's either a bifiler winding or it's a uh, single winding and a uh, trifiler. I suspect it's a trifiler. Yeah, I think it was now that I'm thinking of it. The center tap you, you see is essentially at the, um, it's it, it also is biased at the halfway point of two and a half volts. So like, like we're establishing the ground or the, um, uh, it's not actually the ground, but it's the, from an op-amp perspective, it's the second input's um, reference point that is being established at 2.5 volts. And the signals, the signal that is coming through that transformer essentially is coming through in two pieces. Uh, that are 90 degrees out of phase um, and being applied to the QSD circuit, which is another FST3253. You see the signals going through a 10 ohm resistor uh, to the inputs of, of uh, that particular chip in bubble number six. Now, bubble number six is kind of where it all comes together. Uh, so everything we've been talking about now really comes together in this mixer circuit. This is the TALO circuit the quadrature sampling uh, detector. Now, the QSD, the quadrature sampling detector clocks, QSD clock zero and QSD clock one come into this chip as, uh, as indicated there into pins 14 and two. 
and it is clocking some switches. These are CMOS switches, simple internal switches that are closing and opening and allowing the signal uh, that is coming in to be passed through in certain uh, timing relationships such that they get passed through to the output, um, which is at pins 1, uh, 1A and 2A, which is uh, coming out of the chip on the right-hand side at, uh, at the audio baseband frequency. So coming into the left, you've got the antenna signal, which was band passed. And let's just say it's now it's a 7.1 modulated signal. Um, and it is being in, inserted to this QSD uh, circuit. The, clocks, the quadrature clocks are being applied. And then the resulting is uh, a mixing down to baseband audio of two identical signals. Um, but they are separated by 90 degrees. So the whole idea is then to take those signals, amplify them, but in strict, uh, strictly control the audio phasing, uh, the, the phase of the signals, such that they are identical from channel to channel. That would be in the two op amps in bubble number seven. And then apply that out through the line in jack, as John anomalously uh, uh, pointed out. And that line in jack goes to line in on your computer, and your computer is able to take those signals and process them with a basic function called the Hilbert function. When the Hilbert function is simply a, well, it's a DSP type of function that is able to essentially, once again, shift internally, but also it ends up in demodulating the audio signals, the SSB signals, if you will, that are coming through. But the heart of it, the heart of all of the soft rock is right there at the bubble number six, the QSD circuit. And, uh, you know, that's that's kind of where we've been uh, ultimately heading for all of this uh, this discussion. Now, the the IQ products of the of the QSD mixer, you know, when uh, input to the appropriate SDR program through the PC audio sound card results in a spectrum display on your PC, which shows signals whatever the RF signals are from your antenna, they're centered around a, a center frequency. And this is the center frequency uh, that is what whatever the, uh, the SI570 clock generator was commanded to, uh, uh, to be generating at times four. So in other words, I'm I've been using the 7.1 megahertz. So on your spectrum display around 7.1 megahertz, you would see signals that are on plus and minus that particular sound uh, or that particular frequency. And then uh, the sound cards usually have like a 48 kilohertz sampling rate and your SDR program is able to translate those I and Q signals, those two channels coming out of the amplifiers into a chunk of spectrum that is on, that is both uh, plus and minus 24 kilohertz, 24 kilohertz below that 7.1 megahertz and 24 kilohertz above. Now, this is getting a little complex. If you're really not following along, it's okay. But just think of it as that your sound card is able to take a chunk of um, spectrum, a chunk of audio that represents a chunk of spectrum, and display it um, in a graph, a spectrograph, on your display that actually is indicative of the signals that are coming through there. Now, as you tune, as the user tunes the receiver, you know, it varies the frequency of the oscillator, the SI570 oscillator, um, the microcontroller tracks that frequency and he switches the bandpass filters as we talked about 
with uh, F, um, FL select 0 and FL select 1, such that you get the right bandpass filter applied. And then um, the SDR program, again, displays that new center frequency. Uh, it kind of tracks to whatever your changing of the SI570 uh, is. So um, that receiver is controlled by the USB connection. You recall that USB connection coming in. And kind of an interesting observation, something to keep in mind when you're debugging, when you're, when you're troubleshooting, is that um, this, this circuit, the Soft Rock Ensemble, does not work if you do not have the USB cable plugged into a live computer. A, you need the, the 5 volts coming off of the USB connector in order to power the clock generator. And B, of course, you need the program running on the PC, which is sending controls down the USB cable to the AT tiny 85 controller we mentioned in the up above schematic and that AT tiny controls the SI 570 to go on the specific frequency that you want to be listening to which generates the quadrature signal the clocks the quadrature clocks that can divide it down by two and you can divide it divide it down by two again to create quadrature related clocks at 7.1 megahertz which get applied down to the QSD circuit the quadrature sampling circuit, the TALO circuit, which mixes with the RF that you're listening to, want to be listening to, to produce two identical signals at baseband that are only differing in phase. And that's what gets back put back into the PC's sound card. And the sound card um, applies other DSP processing called the Hilbert mixer and, and decodes that uh, sideband frequency, for example. Uh, such that you can hear it in your PC speakers. So it's a long story and kind of a simple circuit, but uh, that, that's kind of like the, the bigger picture, and we wanted to really touch on some of the, uh, the points that you would be able to measure at in this signal chain in order to determine if, if their circuits are working. And then uh, maybe armed with this kind of information, you might be able to actually get your software uh, or your soft rock ensemble RX2 working. Joe, do you want to kind of maybe touch on a couple of points that I might have glossed over or clarify? Sure. Yeah. Um, someone pointed out that uh, indeed the output, the two outputs of T3 are 180 degrees out of phase. That's, yeah, that's true. Uh, minor slip. <laughs> In something this complicated, it's, it's easy to slip 90 degrees here or there. Um, certainly the, the two channels, as George mentioned earlier, uh, the I and Q channels have uh, the same information as far as uh, signal amplitude. They just shifted 90 degrees in phase. So as you go through the, the whole thing from the, um, the output of this quadrature uh, switching detector, the I and the Q channels, the two signals, uh, chains have identical amplitude signals. And they have indeed an identical uh, bias signals. So you can track through in each of the two signal chains through the two sections of the op-amp, and all of the signals in both should be the same. They should be biased at 2.5 volts uh, because of the, um, the voltage divider, so that you'll have the same bias all the way through. And uh, both signals should be equal in amplitude as you go through there. Practically speaking, having uh, troubleshot some other... Um, some other things along the way uh, related to this, the RXTX, for example, 
many of the problems come about because um, the components, some of the components are uh, 5% components, some of them are 1% components, and it can get pretty uh, confusing as to the marking of the resistors. Um, and the holes are very, very close together on a printed circuit board, so it's very easy to put um, a resistor lead in uh, an adjacent hole where it doesn't belong so that you have a component hooked up in the wrong place. Quite often you'll see this as a goofed up bias in one of the op amps. One of the op amps inputs will be two and a half volts, but the outputs will be at either um, zero or five volts. And that's a clue that there's a bum resistor or short, short circuit place someplace or a component in the wrong hole. So the point is everything through there wants to be balanced and equal. And, um, and you've got to check the components to be sure they're in the, uh, in the right places. You don't need anything fancy to do this. Um, anytime you get any audio through there, if you have a scope, you can check it through. And even with a DVM, you can check the bias voltages to make sure they pass through all the way. Yep, indeed. Um, questions to, uh, has, has anybody here been successful in building an Ensemble RX2 uh, uh, receiver? Alan, is that you? You you were able to do that? Uh, not yet, <laughs> I should say. Uh, I've, I've got one on my bench I'm waiting to uh, to get to. I've uh, been building a bunch of uh, uh, kits for a friend of mine, uh, Jerry, uh, N2GJ, and that's uh, that's one of the next ones on the list to build. Oh, good. Rick, Rick have you built one? Uh, no, but I've watched or listened to lots of other people build them. Uh, I don't think you have it in your uh, references section. But the Yahoo group that is called Softrock 4.0, uh, which was originally started off to uh, support builders of a much simpler uh, receiver, uh, also along the same design ideas, uh, now covers virtually all of the various units that are available from uh, Tony. Uh, and many of them are uh, for this unit. And uh, I would say that the greater majority are for the RXTX unit. So it might be worth putting that uh, Yahoo uh, group uh, into your references. That's great. I didn't uh, didn't realize that, and that's a good reference to put in there. Pete, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, you'll find a very, very heavy traffic on that group. Uh, to answer your question, of course, no, I have not built the RX Ensemble, but I have built three of uh, Tony's uh, projects, and they all have very much the same uh, circuitry, one with an SI570 and uh, one of the uh, older RXTXs that did not have the SI570 and one of the very first original, as he just said, simpler uh, soft rock 40s. Uh, unfortunately, from the standpoint of troubleshooting, they all worked right off the bat, so I never, never troubleshot them. Yeah, they are, they are somewhat similar. A lot of common techniques. Um, that FST3253 is a workhorse, for an awful lot of designs, um, it's a very powerful circuit. Simple yet powerful, and it's quite quite useful. And the commutating as a commutating filter, um, it switches uh, analog switches, and, and it's just very very useful. And the soft rock teams along the way have just been really created um, wonderful quality performance circuits with minimal components. Now, admittedly, you know they're there are some other products in the market that are just, you know, knock the socks off of uh, 
designs like this, but nothing that's in the range of $40 to, you know, 40 to $80 for a kit. And, and I remember when we brought out, um, with Tony, we brought out the, the Soft Rock 40, um, that the long, slender, rectangular board with a USB connector on it. We plugged right into the USB port. We featured it in one of our uh, QRP Homebrewer magazine. Actually, it was Homebrewer number one, I think, and uh, magazine. And we actually had an interview with Tony, K, um, K9YIG, KB9YIG. And uh, I had a wonderful audio uh, interview with him that we put onto the audio um, or onto the support CD for that magazine issue. And it was wonderful to hear the background and, and, and modus operandi and goals that he had and he carried forward, carries forward right to today as far as getting low cost circuits out of good, good quality design with, with the help of an awful lot of good people in the, uh, in the soft rock community. It's a, it's a fun, it's, it's, this is a fun hobby. I, I, there's so many dimensions to it that it's hard to, to hard to really say. All right, we're probably wrapped up here for this uh, this uh, topic of troubleshooting, and um, especially for this particular design. If you are only listening by means of podcast, or if you just don't happen to have the whiteboard up in front of you, or if you haven't had a chance to actually do, you know, uh, uh, develop. Um, or uh, build an ensemble, this might have sounded kind of complex, you know, with all the different circuit components that we're talking about. But what Joe and I wanted to do is to kind of draw together the various techniques and principles and components that we've been talking about over the last, oh gosh, the last uh, seven or eight weeks, and actually have a good representative discussion of a circuit that uses those components and uses those principles and we can give some guidance relative to how to go about seeing if the, this, if the darn circuit's working and give you the, uh, the ideas and some of the insight that we have exercised and developed and learned over the years such that when it comes time for you to be looking at one of the same kind of circuits on your own bench, you too would be able to kind of pull back into your memory uh, this discussion and others um, or perhaps even better is to go to the chat with the designer whiteboards. You know, we've got on our home page, we've got all 37 episodes listed there with all 37 podcasts and all 37 whiteboards. It's a heck of a lot of good reference information, and we hope you take advantage of that. So, uh, Joe, any final comments here for this evening before we wrap her up? Yeah, just uh, some general comments. Uh, we've tried to do things uh, here, as George said, describing the circuits in some detail uh, and trying to give some options for troubleshooting. Um, we we uh, both happen to be blessed with some decent test equipment to do uh, to do the troubleshooting um, very easily. But there, in a number of instances, there, there are many things you can do with simple test equipment, um, uh, even a, a DVM, to uh, get some idea of what's going on um, in the circuit what may or may not have a, a gross malfunction. Uh, and of course, if you've got a scope, it makes the job much easier. But um, you shouldn't be put off because you don't have great test equipment. Um, uh, and I remember an old phrase, an old tech of mine uh, told me, uh, this gruff old voice says, kid, you know, 90 degrees of problems in electronics are connections. And he was dead right. 
many times it's a bum connection, it's a component in wrong, it's a solder joint that's not right, it's a solder short. So uh, visual inspection and just some DC checks can take you a long way in troubleshooting, even if you don't have some great test equipment. That is great advice. I, I think I have something similar along that line in my uh, when I started off uh, in my early days on the bench as well, way, way back at Kodak. So um, I think another thing that really we can count on as homebrewers and experimenters, usually we take known good circuits to start off with. Normally we take them and then adapt them to our heart's content. Whether it's building a kit, usually it's a kit that should be working. Or usually it's a circuit that, you know, we we, we unabashedly take from Wes Hayward or um, any one of the uh, really smart designers in our, uh, the legends in our QRP community over the years. And we use that as a starting point. So being able to kind of pull that together and use that as a starting point is, it's, it's comforting we, because we know it should work. And hence these troubleshooting techniques are are where it comes in uh, comes in handy. John, you want to have a comment here? Uh, yeah, um, uh, harking back to my uh, desire to ask a question about my software oscilloscope, which uh, Joe assures me is um, created by Devil Spawn. Uh, before I knew better, I I bought one because I didn't have enough bucks to buy a a decent hardware oscilloscope with uh, enough frequency bandwidth or with enough bandwidth. Um, are they totally useless? Uh, have I made a total a bummer, a mistake? Uh, should I sell it straight away? I know you don't. You don't have to answer those questions, but any further comments appreciated. Yeah, well, um, I, I think if I were to just to simply state your question, you bought you bought an um, a, um, a, a PC scope, a PC-based oscilloscope. I have one here too, and it's good for frequencies up to the high audio frequencies, or maybe even into the low megahertz at best. Um, you certainly cannot use it, at least directly, um, for RF signals, but I find it useful when wanting to measure and, and capture good quality audio signals, you know, measuring phase difference of some of these audio signals that we're dealing with in the baseband, um, looking at frequency response of audio signals, it's it's pretty handy. And looking for audio transmission signals, test tones and the purity of test tones that you might be injecting into other um, transmitters and such. Alan, W2AEW, do you want to comment on the usefulness of uh, or the limits, limitations of of uh, PC-based um, oscilloscope cards? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I think, like you said, I mean, they're good for, uh, you know, uh, typically audio uh, and, uh, you know, sub-1 megahertz signals typically. Uh, there are some higher performance ones that will go higher. Uh, the biggest limitation in my mind is that of, uh, you, you, don't, you generally don't have a good way of connecting up a variety of different probes. So you might be limited in terms of your probing capability. You may be limited in terms of different types of triggering if you want to trigger on particular tricky signals. And probably the biggest limitation in my mind is that you, you've got to drag around the computer, okay, to, to be able to use it as a scope. 
And you're also subject to all of the noise and such that may be coming from your computer. So it might be a little bit limited in terms of looking at very low-level signals. Uh, they might be buried within the noise that are, is just going to be picked up from the computer as compared to using a, a standalone uh, you know, oscilloscope. But just for basic looking at uh, signal waveforms, make sure that a signal is there or not, that basic wave shape is what you want it to be, some basic measurements, um, you know, they can certainly be useful. But, um, you know, I, I wouldn't recommend it as your only scope uh, if uh, you've got the facility to buy something else or get, get a standalone scope. But uh, uh, if, if it's all you've got, it uh, can certainly give you some more visibility than a DMM or something like that can. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you, Alan and George. Um, they say the scope is rated up to 40 megahertz. I don't know whether they're telling the truth. But, uh, yeah, so far I haven't got much, had much use out of it. Well, if it goes up to 40 megahertz, it's probably of greater use than we're, than we're suggesting, and it might be a more powerful, uh, some embedded, embedded electronics in the, in the pod to help on, uh, help some of the sampling and, and uh, inputting of data. But nonetheless, I think Alan's comments and my comments are probably appropriate, and my, my suggestion is, you can never have too many test pieces of test equipment. You got to remember there is no silver bullet in life in general, and there's no one piece of test equipment on your bench that's going to do the job for you for everything. Uh, there's no like like we mostly know here. There's no one transmitter, no one kit, no transceiver that is the perfect be all end all one that's gonna that's gonna do do you forever. So. Keep in mind that you want to be collecting the right kind of tools to be doing the right kind of uh, uh, work, much like tools on a workbench, you know, physical tools, uh, different sized wrenches, different sized clamps, different kinds of drill presses. Same kind of thing when it comes to electronics and designing and experimenting and troubleshooting. Uh, different kinds of tools are applicable in different scenarios. So, Rick, you had a, I think you had a question. Uh, yes, I was thinking that their discussion this evening uh, really shows that uh, if you wanted to expand the scope of your uh, presentations uh, somewhat, uh, a full session on uh, quadrature detection with a whole slew of scope photos showing all of the various uh, phase relationships uh, to get your I and Q signal. And I'm not sure you ever mentioned what the I and the Q stood for, but uh, you could certainly build an entire presentation just around the topic of that, uh, all that stuff that comes together in that one chip. Yeah, good idea. Sometimes these these principles are much easier um, and better understood if you're able to actually see them like you suggest there. Good idea. Maybe we'll do that sometime. Joe, why don't you take us home tonight and close up the shop? Okay, thank you, George. All right, this has been a, uh, a two-session um, treatise on uh, uh, troubleshooting, basically. We've tried to uh, present uh, some ideas of what you need to uh, uh, troubleshoot, some uh, philosophies of troubleshooting, how to go about it, how to um, uh, reduce the uh, scope of your task by uh, uh, selectively or successively uh, knocking problems down uh, into two areas, what does work and doesn't work. And um, to tie it all together, we went through the theory of operation and a uh, detailed discussion of the Ensemble uh, Receiver 2, um, which combined both uh, 
analog and digital circuitry uh, in a uh, software-defined uh, receiver, uh, going through stage by stage, telling what happened in each stage, and uh, giving the high points of uh, what to look for in each stage as you're troubleshooting, the sorts of things that can go wrong, and um, what to look for when things go right, um, using a variety of uh, different pieces of test equipment, full spectrum from uh, a full shop to uh, somebody who has only a, a DMM. Um, and we attempted to, uh, to give uh, a little bit of uh, hope to those who uh, have meager test equipment, uh, using just their wits to uh, troubleshoot. Um, and a lot of it uh, boils down to uh, improper connections, uh, wrongly marked components or wrongly read components, or things not installed properly. So, uh, uh, you know, all is not lost if it doesn't work. A uh, goodly portion of what you're doing, just a little bit of common sense, some good eyeballing of the circuitry, following along with the uh, documentation, and a couple DC measurements can get you a long way. Um, uh, but for the uh, really detailed uh, troubleshooting, perhaps uh, either another unit to compare it with or uh, some more sophisticated test equipment will, um, will help tie the knot on it. All right. Thank you, Joe. And we thank everybody for joining us here tonight. We'll talk on the Chat with the Designer Reflector on Yahoo Groups about topics for our upcoming week, what might be uh, might be desired, and we'll kind of get the material ready and get the material from tonight uh, prepared onto the web, uh, onto the whiteboard, and, and the podcast posted as well. So thank you everybody for joining us tonight. This is George and two APB and Joe and two CX, your hosts for Chat with the Designer, saying good night. Mm-hmm.